Welcome to the Maris Review. I'm Maris Kreisman. And I just, it's so exciting when you discover an, an entirely new voice. Um, this debut novel is just so wonderful and I'm so glad to be joined by the author today. Chantal V. Johnson is a tenant lawyer and writer, a graduate of Stanford Law School and a 2018 Center for Fiction Emerging Writers Fellow. She lives in New York and her debut novel is called Post Traumatic. Hi, Chantal. Hi, Maris. Thank you so much for, for having me. I, I, I'm truly honored. <laughs> I, I, I'm so happy to talk to you. Partly, I mean, it's almost like Parle Segal was reacting to your book in particular when we're talking about the trauma plot and the question in literature of like, are you your trauma? Mm -hmm. Are you are you not? Let's talk about that. Wow. Okay, you're going. <laughs> going you're going straight. right. <laughs> Just threw me into the lion's den. Um, so I actually, I, I think that, that parole is, I, I don't feel implicated really by that essay at all. No. Um, because in, in a sense that I myself was writing this book against certain trauma narrative tropes that mm -hmm. I had seen when I was, when I was growing up. Um, but first, like, I do think before talking about that essay that I do just kind of want to lay out some of what she says in it. Um, because I do agree, I agree with some of it. Um, but then I have some quibbles with some of it. Um, I'm on the same page there. Yeah, yeah. Um, so I mean, I think one thing that she says is that she's very worried that in some of these more, I call them middle brow, trauma novels, <laughs> many, many of which I haven't actually read. Um, but th there's this idea that trauma trumps all other aspects of identity, right? And she says that in the essay. And that's really troubling to her um, because I assume, you know, she wants a vibrant character. She wants interesting characters um, whose, whose quirks and personality traits can't be reduced to a single event or, or, or set of events in their lives. She's also concerned about this idea that people who have experienced trauma, um, both in books and in the world, and I think those kind of things get a little bit tricky in that yeah, essay, because yeah. sometimes I feel like she's just talking about like trauma grifters on Twitter. And I'm not seeing a lot of trauma grifting on the page in novels, at least I'm not getting that sense, but you do, like you open your phone and you do see that. You see people using their experiences to give them the kind of moral authority. Um, and so I understand that as a concern. And then I think she also has like a craft concern, um, mm -hmm. which again goes back to partially character. Um, you know, she, she says something like walking DSM, like a vivified, <laughs> you know, walking DSM entry. Um, and then on the level of like this, this idea of, of flashbacks in narrative um, as summations, again, of personality is really troubling to her. I, I think I put it poorly uh, in, the, in the initial question, because of course you were busy writing this novel uh, before that piece came out, but it seems like a great answer to that question. Like exactly, exactly. Um, like, I think my book is kind of like the book that she's looking for. 
I mean, I, you know, like I, 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 so I feel, you know what I mean? I mean, and that's going to be, wow. Like that's a ridiculous thing for me to say, but you know, I didn't feel implicated in, in it because I knew that I hadn't done any of that. And in fact, like one of the main points of my book is that personality, at least in my main character, Vivian, who works as a lawyer in a psychiatric hospital and is wrestling with the aftermath of, of, of violent events in her life. Um, one of the main points with that character is that personality cannot be extinguished by violence and her humor cannot be extinguished by that violence. She experiences violence and she's going to make jokes about it. She's going to engage in cultural criticism of misogyny in the culture um, and of misogynoir in the culture. Her and her best friend Jane are black stoner intellectuals who have survived violence and who, as far as they are concerned, they're the most interesting people in America. And so, you know, so, so, and, and when I was writing the book, I was writing against different, uh, a different set of books, a different canon than, than Parole's talking about in, mm -hmm. in, in her essay. So I came up with, with um, certain kind of stock trauma narratives, like the, the harrowing childhood book, um, the sentimental family saga, where there's abuse at the heart of the family, um, the, the ghost girl narrative, you know, the, the, the dead girl who's been mm -hmm, killed by mm -hmm. like a child molester or a pedophile. And the reader is, is in some ways frantically reading the book to watch a child be murdered. Um, or frantically reading the book to watch a child be raped because a lot of those books begin with, they begin kind of proleptically where they say, it's a fancy word for foreshadowing where they say like, you know, I mean, even the bluest eye, right? She was impregnated by her father and you're essentially reading to, to watch her be raped by her father. Um, and the bluest eye was a really pivotal key book for me when I was a teenager, um, this idea that the story of abuse of a black girl um, and how that corrupts her psychology, that that story is valuable was incredibly important and monumental to me um, as a reader. But as a writer who's setting out to engage in this field of trauma and survivor literature, I wanted to do something very different. And you, I, I love Vivian's sense of humor. It's darker than dark, 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 like. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. For, like page 10 or something they're making jokes about a bad thing about child abuse is having hpv in kindergarten <laughs> right 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 yeah it's very that's very um that's very cheeky and it's very outre and it's not going to be for everyone mm -hmm. but there are people who metabolize their trauma that way there absolutely. absolutely are. I mean, go to any stand-up show. I mean, that's, you know, and like comedy is one of my biggest influences, to be honest, mm. um, in that way. I mean, specifically Maria Bamford is someone who is a big influence on me. Oh, um, you know, the, this idea of taking mental illness, taking mental health issues and therapy and turning it into comedy feels so powerful to me. Um, and so disarming for kind of everyone involved and a way to take power back <laughs> mm -hmm. um, after being violated and after losing dignity. So I really wanted to infuse my narrative with, with humor. I didn't want it to be sentimental and too maudlin, saccharine, 
um, this kind of like pity party. Mm -hmm. Um, But at the same time, I mean, my characters have been abused, you know? (laughs) And so, you know, and, and, and the book explores the different ways that the past does crop up in the present. I I was thinking about, I I was trying to describe this book to a friend and I called it Mm post-post-traumatic. Like mm -hmm. when you've determined for yourself that you're over it. Yes. Then what? Yeah, I mean, that's like the the title for me has so many different valences and that is, and and, you know, I hope that people get it. It it, it is a challenge to have a title like this. Um, Many people expect that it's gonna be a memoir and many people think because I'm a lawyer that I wrote nonfiction. Um, And I think the title for some reason invites people to think it's memoir, it's not. But one of the one of the valences of the title for me is this idea that the main character thinks that she's over it. She believes that she's post trauma, right? That she, because she can make jokes about it, because she's very uh, quote unquote high functioning, has a very successful career, um, it has made a life for herself, has kind of escaped the poverty of her family, is upwardly mobile. Um, and has relationships and like is dating hot guys she's like what's the problem here like Mm -hmm. I'm totally over it so like that's one of the balances of the title I think another thing is the emphasis on the after for me um again a a way of kind of rejecting narratives that steep you in the 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 violence And, and and those can be great and they can be done well but that's just not my project sure so because we're talking about how this is not a memoir mm-hmm. and I, I'm going to venture to say, you can tell me if I'm wrong, that it's not autofiction either. I don't identify it as autofiction. No. Um, so, so many things are different. So many things are different. <laughs> but I did like at the end. So Vivian is a lawyer who aspires to be a novelist. Yes. Or a lawyer who's written a novel. Um, yes. And Vivian says blatantly, like, I like when people write novels that are somewhat autobiographical <laughs> and that, that, that seemed like you were telling us what to uh take away from that <laughs> yeah I mean I think you know artists always use themselves um and the people around them like very obviously but I think I, I think I have done that but the tilt has been towards more fictionalization mm-hmm. Um, and so that's, uh, that, I guess that's how I would answer that. Yeah. I, one of the things that you do so well in this novel is you really take us inside Vivian's head and for the most part, it's a, it's a lovely place to be until it's not, (laughs) (laughs) but like her thought processes are, are, are so familiar to me, even though Mm -hmm. this character is you know, not the same as me at all, mm-hmm. it, that, that it really just, even in terms of what she thinks about the male gaze and why is he leering? Okay, but why isn't he leering? And like, is mm-hmm. there, am I not attractive enough to be leered at? <laughs> <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. And, yeah. and then also the female gaze I wanted to talk to you about because I like this idea. I I feel like we're told these days that comparing yourself to other women used to be just about jealousy and Mm -hmm. competition. Mm -hmm. And then 
we're told now that maybe it's about lust. Maybe it's, you don't want to be like them. You want them. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. And it seems like Vivian's kind of like, why not both? (laughs) (laughs) Oh yeah, absolutely. I mean, I think Vivian definitely has like some sapphic energy in terms of like her, she's so into and interested in women um, as the author is as well. You know, Mm -hmm. I would say that like women and gender are probably my biggest inspirations as an artist. Um, And, you know, I've loved, I've loved women ever since I was, you know, young enough to have, you know, like I, I've always had like a a huge posse of of girls around me, you know, as Tori Amos says, big loan from the girl zone. <laughs> um, you know, I'm always someone who who has has needed that big loan from the girl zone. Um, and it's just very female oriented in terms of my cultural interests. Um, the cinema that I consume is feminist, female gaze cinema, not male, male gaze cinema. The music that I consume is, is very feminist and, and women in, and women centered. And I think you know, Vivian is like that as well. She loves women, but she also feels deeply oppressed by other women. And she engages in and perpetuates that oppression as well. And that is part of the, that's part of the thing about gender that I find really interesting, especially when you're a feminist, you know? And, And for me, I, as a novelist, I'm interested in the gap between one's politics and the execution of the politics. And I think it's, it's easy to like, state your politics online or whatever and like curate an image of yourself as like a leftist progressive feminist anti-racist blah 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 but what is going on in your mind like thoughts and like neuro circuits that have been being activated since you were like five six seven eight years old it gets very difficult to slough that off um as you get older and and oftentimes feminists find a real disconnect between what they believe they should be feeling and experiencing and what they are actually feeling and experiencing and i think vivian's uh body uh issues and food issues are a great way that i i I really wanted to kind of play that out that kind of like, on the one hand, yeah. she's giving feminist lectures, angry, strident feminist rants, and, and she hates uh, the Paula Pauline character um, who like loses all this weight and is like this like simple white dumb bitch. And, <laughs> um, and, and she hates men that are predatory and she confronts them and all this stuff. But then secretly, like she's restricting her food intake, not telling her friend that and engaging in these like body measuring rituals um, and really want this hot guy to like love her, <laughs> you know? So, but that's, that's humanity guys. That <laughs> like that's, you know, like, you know, guys and gals and folks, like that's who we are. Like hypocrisy Absolutely. is, is us. <laughs> and I think talking about disordered eating and body image issues along with Vivian's 
really active fantasy life about men and like mm-hmm. her, it feels like it comes from a similar place, which is you can see in her thought patterns, there is obsession and you can turn the spotlight here or there, but it kind of feels like it's coming from a similar place. Yeah, for sure. And there's that moment, you know, I think there's obsession and then there's also like the the generation of, of positive feeling that comes from fantasy. Um, like a self-soothing feeling mm-hmm. of, you know, and that happens very early on in the book where we see her kind of fantasizing, you know, she feels unattractive. And then immediately after that feeling of like, oh, I'm, I'm ugly or whatever, she has this fantasy of seducing someone and that makes her feel like all the oxytocin, mm-hmm. you know, and the oozing warm calm that allows her to, to go to sleep. Um, and that's a, that's a coping mechanism for a lot of people, <laughs> you know, I, I, fantasy, I, romantic fantasy. It's, it feels great. It's amazing. I, um, I've never done that. So. <laughs> <laughs> um, and, and I do love the way this plays out, particularly you write such a good karaoke scene. Ooh, woo. You set the stage so well, the song selections are there, the, idea that Vivian is trying to impress through song. Yes. Um, The husband of a friend of a friend. Tell me about all of that. (laughs) Well, I think, I think I I love karaoke. I know that you do as well. I have, I have observed from your tweets. Um, I have gleaned um, that you are a person of karaoke experience. (laughs) Um, I think music generally in the book functions as a space where Vivian is kind of free from her neuroses in in, in many ways. You know, there's a scene where she's dancing and is kind of, you know, really not being neurotic. She's just kind of surrendering to the glory of song, as I refer to it in the book. And I think that that singing, uh, and so I think she has that relationship with, with dancing to music. I think she has that relationship to listening to music. There's lots of musical references in the book. Uh-huh. She listens to music a lot. Um, and then I think with singing and performing, it's an area where, yeah, I mean, she is trying to impress this guy, but she's also feeling like really confident in what she's doing because she can sing, yeah. <laughs> you know, and she, and she knows every song. And I think that in a, in a book like this, that is, that really does, take you to some dark places, though it does that, I, I hope, with, with levity and with uh, uh, intellectualism and, and all of these kind of distancing mechanisms or leavening mechanisms that, that assist the reader and, and help the reader cope with the dark material. Yes. Uh, so there is a lot of dark material, but I, I, I do feel that I am a person who's constantly thinking about tone and, and a balance of tone. And music is such an important part of my life and it's probably my favorite art form and it's probably the only thing, the only art form that I feel that I don't have to defend at all because I just have such a pure relationship to it. So I wanted to have some ecstatic experiences in the book. And one of those ecstatic experiences is is, is karaoke. <laughs> I love that. And I, I, I feel like there is so much cultural criticism in this in this book and so so many music takes that mm-hmm. were were 
I mean, I'm I'm still thinking about how grunge might not actually exist. Not <laughs> yes. <laughs> Did yes. I blow your mind? Oh, I mind. blew your mind. <laughs> yeah, yeah. It's like when the when the real estate developers tried to make uh, Greenwood Heights a neighborhood, and you're like, that's not that's that's not a neighborhood. <laughs> You know, well, they do it with music too, okay? And grunge is really just like a bunch of different bands with totally different sounds and different roots. Like maybe some of them were wearing flannel, but <laughs> you know, they weren't doing it was the, the 90s, but <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, and, and, and then of course I love that as another way to kind of have a hot take that's impressive. Vivian goes to a party and purposely brings up Woody Allen. <laughs> yes, yes, she does. She does do that. <laughs> and, and I feel like it's, it's actually, when we're ta- talking about moral hypocrisy, yeah. the art from the artist take that, that Vivian has, it feels really compelling. Do you want to talk about that a little bit? Oh, sure. Yeah. Thank you. Glad that that, that that was interesting to you. I mean, part of that, to be honest, is a, is a little bit of a, of a jab at like um, New York City media culture and the way that that conversation was happening. It just bothered me a little bit and I kind of like approached it in a different way, like a little bit like from the from the left uh, mm-hmm. where I I mean, obviously like, you know, rapists and pedophiles are horrible and bad, you know? And like, that's what Vivian is saying. She's like, well, obviously they're bad. Um, But like, if we're talking about moral obligations and ethics and stuff, like the real conversation is about actual rape and abuse that's happening in our lives that we may be enabling or that we may be, you know, shielding people in our lives from accountability before, um, that we may be ignoring because it's more convenient for us. And so it feels like the art conversation is, is just, it's like a red herring almost mm-hmm. because, you know, and she's like, an, she's a lawyer, you know, <laughs> so she's, she's in a world where it's like, there's, re- there, there's real stakes and like the real problem is abuse. Um, it's not to her the art so much because abusers, you know, as someone says in the, in the book, I mean, abusers are everywhere, you know, I mean, abusers are, are delivering your mail. And so are you, are you going to refuse to engage in the postal system? Like, like what, what are, what are the lines? Uh, because uh, abuse is so endemic that it's almost banal. Like we, we all, probably know someone who has abused someone and what are we what are we doing about that but like if y'all want to like fight about like watching Manhattan okay (laughs) okay but like children are actually being abused and murdered um but if you want to like fight uh for 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 hours and 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 years (laughs) about whether you could watch Manhattan I mean sure and I think the other thing is that like the other way that I'm kind of poking fun at, at the media class is that, um, you know, I am someone, and this is going to sound so self-righteous, but I am someone who it's been really important for me to live out my politics in the world. I mean, that that's why I became 
a lawyer. And that was a very difficult thing for me to do. And in some ways it went against certain aspects of, of my personality, but I did it because I thought that I would be good at it and I could like do good things in the world. Um, and I wouldn't be able to live with myself if I, if I wasn't um, kind of in, in the trenches or, or whatever, I hate to use like a war metaphor. Um, and I, I feel that a lot of progressive people who work in media have no political outlet. And so then aesthetics becomes the only space where they can actually uh, think about and, and enact politics. But for me, it just always seems um, empty or, or, or not that interesting or not as important as the thing itself. Chantal, that's a good segue into talking a little bit about Vivian's career and how she too wants to devote herself to helping people. Mm -hmm. And then you kind of take us through how fucking difficult that is, how soul crushing it can be. Yeah, so Vivian works in a hospital that has a huge psychiatric ward and she's an attorney for, for people who are institutionalized who wanna get out of the hospital or want to like not be forcibly drugged. Um, and uh, in New York City, uh, institutionalized patients are entitled to an attorney um, in the same way that um, people who are arrested are. Um, and so Vivian, does that for a living, um, but the deck is stacked. You know, the deck is stacked against Vivian and the deck is stacked against her clients, many of whom are, are also trauma survivors, um, um, which is something that was important to me to, to kind of represent. Mm -hmm. um, you know, I'm trying to, uh, I guess, intervene in this kind of like, uh, you know, it's not incarceration, hospitalization is not the same as incarceration, but it is similar in that it's a liberty restriction yeah. that is often, um, that often plays out in racial ways. Um, you know, we don't necessarily think about uh, like, diagnostic racism because yeah. we think about medical professionals as people who are like really smart like know what they're doing and like mental illness is real and it's in your brain and all this stuff um but actually it's incredibly subjective to make psychiatric diagnoses and oftentimes that encounter between doctor and black or brown poor patient results in diagnoses that may not fit the person, um, medical treatments that are, uh, you know, invasive and re-traumatizing, uh, an assumption of danger just because someone is black and brown or angry. Mm -hmm. um, and so, you know, all of that to a certain extent like shows up in, in the book, but unfortunately because of the larger system, Vivian is, is seldom uh, successful <laughs> in, in representing her clients. And in that particular field, which I do have a little bit of experience with, um, it's a very demoralizing feeling to be someone who 
is hyperverbal, like so smart. And you think that you're going to like go in there and like get people freed. And then you just lose again and again and again. And you're demoralized and your clients are demoralized. And everyone's making fun of them. And th as the attorney, you are like the metonymic, uh, like you're, you're like, you're like a surrogate. You're, you're like, you're like adjacent to the stigma. So mm -hmm. then you get all of the like stigma runoff. And so you're treated like garbage. It's not like she's treated like this fancy lawyer. No, she's treated yeah. like shit. She's treated exactly like her clients are treated, um, which is she's disrespected over and over and over again. Yeah. And, and then it, you, that begs the question, like, what's the line? How much indignity is one person meant to shoulder before yeah. it's too destructive. Yeah. I mean, I think, you know, that's, that's the challenge for her, for, for Vivian, you know, and she's such a scrupulous person. Um, you know, I mean, I think, I think part of the thing with her is that, um, you know, her experiences and her familial context, and she has mental illness in her family, et cetera, has really, you know, inspired her to want to be like an ally, yeah. <laughs> you know, yeah. an ally of people with mental illness. She has people in her family who has that. And she is struggling with her own, you know, the funny thing about Vivian though, is that she doesn't put two and two together, which is really funny. Mm -hmm. She doesn't like, she doesn't realize like maybe she's doing this because she also has some problems, you know, <laughs> you know, uh, she really doesn't put two and two together. And I like, I like the idea of having a character who's very smart in a lot of ways, but then also like really effing stupid, um, in multiple ways. Um, and there's this moment in the book where she's like in the notes app of her phone, like here are all the things that I've been wrong about. And it's like a lot of things. <laughs> and it's so interesting as a reader to encounter that because you're able to see, um, but you're just waiting to see if or when that realization will dawn. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, yeah. And I like to kind of bury it in the notes app of, of the phone. For me, that was just really funny. That's like, good. okay. <laughs> uh, and all the little like, the little writing that she does kind of throughout throughout the book um, was also like a fun space for me to, whether it's in the notes of her phone, um, uh, you know, it, it was a fun way for me to, again, I don't know, rewrite this, the, the trauma script mm -hmm. because she's so self-aware and self-conscious and she's really interested in the value of narration and storytelling. And she's someone who like, oh, she has a freak out in a car where she thinks that like her cab driver is gonna attack her. And then as soon as she's safe and gets home, she writes little vignettes about what just happened. And that is like, in some ways, like that's the book in a nutshell. It's like, <laughs> it's like you survive this shit, then you wrote about it and you like made it fun and interesting. That's a form of mastery. That's very cool. <laughs> you know? Chantal, that's the perfect place. Um, <laughs> before we go, 
would you like to recommend some books for us? Sure, sure. Um, so I guess kind of in line with uh, thinking about subversive trauma writing, um, I have a couple recommendations on that tip. Um, so I would recommend uh, Brontes Purnell. Um, and uh, he's, he's written a few books. Um, and Since I Laid My Burden Down is, mm. is a really great um, book. Uh, it's, it's short, it's darkly funny, and it's, it's about a black gay punk uh, dude who's returning to his Alabama hometown after his uncle has died. So he's coming to the uncle's funeral. Um, and when he comes back home, he's kind of flooded with memories of all the boys and men that he's known that have died. And so it's structured around death, but it's not depressing. <laughs> it's really funny and interesting and swift moving. Um, and I think that a book like that is kind of like at the vanguard of trauma writing. Um, I also always uh, recommend Milkman by Anna Burns. Have you, have you read that one? I have not read that uh, one. Oh my, oh, Maris. Oh, you have to. It's the best. I have it on my shelf. I it's will... the best novel of the past 10 years. I mean, it is, it is, it is phenomenal. Um, it's really amazing. It's set uh, in Northern Ireland during the Troubles. And it's about an 18 year old girl who uh, dissociates from the violence in Belfast by reading, reading while walking, actually, as Anna Burns writes. And she gets, she, she is stalked by a paramilitary man uh, known only as the Milkman. And her retrograde community interprets his stalking as uh, them having a consensual affair and there are fatal consequences. But the best thing about the book is like the, the, the style. So I am someone who is obsessed with, with literary style, distinct literary style. I like a writer where you can flip to like page 76 and like read a sentence and know that's an Anna Burns sentence. And with Anna Burns, it's like, that's an Anna Burns paragraph that is very long. And it's like a long chunk of, of a paragraph and it's really digressive and it's funny and it's obfuscating and it's difficult and it contains a lot of moral clarity, which is different from Moral Authority, which Parole talks about in her essay, um, moral clarity is different from moral authority. And that's what I have. And that's what my characters have. <laughs> you know, they're not interested in authority. Sure. But when, you, when you've survived horrendous shit and you can reflect upon it, moral clarity is possible. And Milkman is a good instance of that as is post-traumatic. <laughs> <laughs> so thank you so much. This is wonderful. Post-traumatic, everybody, get on it. <laughs> thank you for listening to the Maris Review and check the show notes for the books we discussed on here today. And please subscribe wherever you get your podcasts.